I'm so happy to be here this morning. I've had three weeks off, and I do feel a lot more refreshed, which is great. Everybody needs a break. How many know that's true? We need moments where we take little sabbaticals, we take time down, we renew, we revive, we refresh. I want to just remind us that Alpha is going to be resuming in the fall here. I know that some people may not feel comfortable. We're, we're working at trying to develop hybrids. We're not quite there yet, but we are working towards that. So if you're feeling comfortable and you'd like to come to the church to participate in Alpha, and there's people out there that would like to join you, if you're a leader, there's a training on Tuesday, this Tuesday, August 18th, and the 25th at 6.30, and it begins in September on the 22nd. So if you're interested in that ministry, I've been involved in it for a number of years. It's great. It's really a wonderful program. We don't have food. We can't serve food because there are some restrictions, but uh, I want to just encourage you to be involved in that. I think you'll enjoy that so much. All right, we're going to have you stand one more time. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. I'm going to just touch, I want to pray uh, today for those who uh, are kind of walking through uh, what I consider trauma, you know, post-trauma uh, regarding what has happened this past week in our city. I'm going to share a little bit. Dr. Thomas uh, brought me a, another email that was another trauma in his daughter's life in the States, and we're going to pray for Melissa as well today. And I want to pray for you this morning that God's going to do an amazing work. I'm excited. You know, when you've had three weeks away from preaching, you know, when you're a preacher, you're ready to go again. That's just the nature of it. So probably more fired up this morning. <laughs> uh, anyways, I want to talk about relationships. How many think that's important? Relationships. We're going to zero in on that this morning. Anybody need a little help in gaining some skills in your relationships? Uh, we're going to look at that. So let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you this morning, and we do pray for many families who have really been traumatized this past week. And we know that grace is greater than sin. And uh, where sin abounds, your word declares to us, grace does much more abound. I pray for Dr. Reynolds' family. I pray for the people that are working in that clinic, Father. We have families from our own church that are involved uh, in that clinic and have been a part of that clinic and actually were traumatized by what had happened. I pray for special grace upon them. I pray for Melissa that you would help her, Lord, uh, really experience your emotional strength. And I pray that for each one that's walking through trauma, that they will receive emotional strength. I pray for those that are challenged right now. Some are, have lost loved ones. Some are dealing with sickness in their bodies. Some are dealing with sickness in their families. Some are dealing with financial pressures. Lord, you know every issue in our life and you care about each and every one of us. There's not one in, this, in the hearing of my voice this, that you do not care about. And I pray today that you would encourage, you would strengthen, that you would instruct, and that you would give us insight and wisdom by the power of your Spirit so that our relationships would become richer and more meaningful and that our own lives would be enriched through the process. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name and God's people said... Amen. You may be seated. So I'm going to continue our uh, Proverbs series this morning. We're in chapter 17, and I want to just start by saying uh, when Andrea, who happened to be part of the worship team this morning, she was on her way to take my granddaughter, Ariella, to skating. Can you imagine skating in August? But that's the way it works nowadays, and she's in figure skating. They were on their way, and all of a sudden, she was driving down uh, Gates Avenue, noticed at the Village Mall all these lights going on, police lights flashing everywhere, and knew that something was going on, and all of a sudden she received a phone call. You know, you have Bluetooth nowadays, you can answer the phone call. She's answering, and a really close friend of hers is sobbing and saying, please pray, get your church family to pray, there's been a crisis. Uh, one of the doctors has been attacked at the clinic. And uh, they're taking him right now, and it's very serious. And so she immediately phones the church, puts uh, this doctor on the prayer line, doesn't know who it is, doesn't know his name, and then picks up the phone. She's disturbed. I mean, that's shocking, right? She tells Patty and I, you know, what's going on. Immediately, I'm concerned because Patty's doctor's in that clinic, and I start thinking of the families from our own church family that are involved, and my heart starts sinking. 
you know, like what in the world's going on? How many know that a tragedy brings, uh, you know, an emotion of shock into your system? I was really subdued that day. We're praying, we're crying out, trying to find out. And as time unfolds, more and more of the story begins to be unpacked. And then we find out that the doctor had passed away, Dr. Reynolds. And, you know, we're stunned. Our hearts are horrified and broken by such a tragedy. And then the question arises in our minds. You know, there's a level of anxiety that comes inside of us. You know, the sense of, you know, our, our, our seemingly sense of security has been shattered. And we wonder how safe our world is really around us. And a bunch of questions start flooding our mind. You know, emotions flood through us. You know, think of things like shock and fear. For some people, they're angry. There's sorrow. There's grief. Uh, all of these things come to mind in tragedy. And then, you know, the response of people. You know, thank God there are caring people. People are supporting. People are praying. People are stepping beside. People are listening. People are giving financial aid. So many ways that we respond and try to help those walking through tragedy. And then questions arise in our mind. Lord, why? Why does this have to happen? We wonder the why questions. How many know the why questions are really difficult because we don't know why? You know, you can't always answer those questions. And then we, then we uh, also think the how questions. How could something like this happen? But just this past week, I received an email. At the same time this is going on, I received an email from Dr. Thomas. He's asking for prayer even right at that moment when his daughter, Melissa, who lives in the United States, she's a pharmacist. Now, she's involved in a hostage situation in her pharmacy. She's hiding in the bathroom. He's typing this email to me. She's phoning her dad in India, telling him, please pray, dad. There's an intrusion in her pharmacy. And she's going through this experience. This is the second time she's had this kind of an emotional trauma in her life. And so immediately we start praying. And then about 20 minutes later, Dr. Thomas emails me back. Yes, they've apprehended the person, and Melissa's okay. But then he says, would you please keep praying for her? And then I received the other night a, another follow-up email from him that says, thank you for upholding Melissa in your prayer. She's getting stronger every day. Will you please pray that she will have, and you know, if Dr. Thomas has He's an interesting framer of words. So he, he decides instead of, you know, just dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder, he calls it post-traumatic emotional strength. Pray for post-traumatic emotional strength. I, I kind of like that phraseology. So I start using that now. I'm praying for our community. God, give us post-traumatic emotional strength as we're walking through this time. And yes, we will keep praying in that area. And so it's during times of instability and unrest and, you know, our culture's in the moment like that. We recognize that. You know, some people, we're, we're talking now about COVID fatigue, right? We hear that expression now. People are just burnt out. When is this ever going to come to an end? And, you know, and some people think that this is all a myth and there's not anything really going on. And then there's other people living in abject fear. So we got expressions and emotions and opinions flying all around us. How many know that's true? I mean, you can sense it. You sense that this is going on in, in our culture. And so what I want to kind of arrest our mind, uh, kind of wrap our minds around today is, you know, tragedy does have a way of getting our attention. How many go, that's the truth? And one of the things that I think it reminds us of in, in, in a moment like this is how transitory or how brief life really is, how fleeting, how fragile this life really is. How many know that that's reality? And yet when we look at the wisdom literature, it reminds us of that. And when I'm reading in Psalm 90 in verse 12, it says, this is a prayer. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. How many think that might be a good prayer? Lord, help us to get the right understanding of what's going on in our world today, right? This is a tragedy. I mean, help us to understand that we need a heart of wisdom during this time. And I think that Proverbs is a part of that wisdom literature, and it's designed to teach us in order for us to gain this heart of wisdom. How many here say, I want to have a heart of wisdom? Anybody here saying, I'm up for that. I need wisdom. You know, James says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Wisdom is an important commodity. We need a right understanding. We need to respond correctly in all kinds and various situations in life. But I think the other benefit of a tragedy is helping us gain perspective and, and the right priorities. How many know that's true? 
that we start the rethink of life. I mean, what's really important anyways? And I'm going to just say this, the most important aspect of life is people. Would anybody disagree with that? People are the most important thing. As a matter of fact, people make our lives rich. They make it meaningful, and they make our lives significant. And at the end of life, you know, it's not what we acquired that really matters. It's not even the status that we've accrued. It's actually the people that we've blessed and enriched through our lives, that we have a purpose here, folks, that we're here to enrich the lives of other people. And the Bible continually emphasizes the value of investing our lives in other people's lives. And so knowing that, we actually struggle with relationships. You know, I'm a pastor. I deal with people all the time, and I recognize people battle with having healthy relationships. And we see that. We see, you know, friendships coming to an end often. We see marriages disappear, you know, being broken. We see families shattered. So we know that relationship building is actually an important element in our lives. And people who learn these skills are going to have a happier life than people who are struggling with developing good interpersonal skills. How many go, that's probably the right thing. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 17, the chapter we're looking has, I know as I was reading through it, I began to see, you know, themes coming out of it. It really deals with the issue of family relationships and friendships. Now, how many know that probably includes all of us? I'm hoping at least you have one friend. And if you don't have one, I can introduce you to one at the end of the service. His name is Jesus. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Uh, he'll be your best friend. Uh, you'll never have to be alone again. So it's always good. We can at least have a friend. So we're going to talk about friendship today. We're talking about family life today. And my point is simply this. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, it's very interesting how he answers. He says this in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: Love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, this is the first and greatest commandment. But I've noticed something. Jesus didn't stop there. He was asked, what is the great commandment? Jesus can just breezes on through because I believe he knows that if we don't understand the second part that he's about to share, we really don't know what it means to love God. And one of the ways we know we truly love God is the way we relate to people. The way I treat people is really an expression and an evidence of how I truly love God. So Jesus goes on to say, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So Jesus is not so much interested in just being a religious person. He's interested in us being a relational person. He's interested in us having a relationship with him, and he's interested with us knowing how to relate to one another in a healthy way, and that is so critical. Now, David Hubbard reminds us that the book of Proverbs is really designed for uh, parents and older people to instruct younger people how to live life. And by the way, how many think it's probably the right order? Older people have more experience and hopefully can instruct younger people how to live. And he says, though indirectly, these words may remind parents of the consequences of raising children well or badly, their primary purpose is to inform the young that they have a lot more to think about than just themselves. Now, that's a very profound statement. And I know our generation, my generation raising kids, we made kids the focus of our family life. And I want to just say something. When you make the kid the main focus, you're actually making a big mistake. Because what we need to teach people is it's not all about you. It's actually about God, and it's about others. And if we don't teach people how to live an unselfish life, we're doing a great disservice. So now there's a lot of young people growing up today. They think it's all about them. And because of that, they act as if the world goes around them, and they have a very difficult time building healthy, meaningful relationships with other people. Can I just say this to all of us? It's not about you. It's actually about Christ. It's actually about God. It's actually about learning to find my place in God's great order of things and learning that God wants to bring me into a circle of people so that I can enrich their lives and in the process be enriched. Isn't that amazing? That the, the element, to be a happy person doesn't mean that everything is, is focused on you. Actually, the less you focus on yourself, the happier you become. It's kind of an irony, isn't it? It's just the opposite of what we would think. And so we need to help our young people move beyond a self-centered focus and extend out to other people. 
So the happy life, as I said, is ultimately one that is not self-absorbed but reaches out to others. And then he makes this challenge in chapter 17. As found elsewhere in Proverbs, Hubbard says, has much, this chapter has much insight to offer a generation that's blind with greed and drunk with ambition. No person in any era or setting can deem themselves wise if they neglect to understand the effect of their drives and decisions on the people closest to them. So no, when you and I sit down to make a decision, the first person to find married is I have to sit down and talk to my wife and say, how do you feel about this? Because every decision I make is going to have a direct impact on you. Isn't that important to do that? You know, see, we don't just do our own things. You know, sometimes as, as uh, individuals, you know, one of the problems in marriages is because people don't communicate with each other and people are making unilateral or singular decisions that are going to totally impact the other person and the family, which is really unfair. And so I'm going to challenge us today to think about others when we're making decisions. So we're going to look at a number of priorities and values today that I think a wise person develops in order to create healthy interpersonal skills and, and actually enriches our relationship. And I want to look at four of them really briefly here today. And actually, this is just an introduction. You know, I started the sermon, and this was point one, and then eventually point one became the whole sermon. Then I had to stop because there was too much stuff in the chapter. And I just said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to whet your appetite, and hopefully you're going to go home and read the rest of the chapter and take a look at some of the things that you can glean from this chapter that will help you develop the right kind of value. So I want to look at four of them that I think are going to create healthy relationships. And the first one is simply this. Less is better when it results in peace. Now, everything about this, these, cha- these proverbs now, these are the better than proverbs. In other words, this is better than that. And that's what he's going to say here. And so relational harmony is better than material abundance and prosperity when the end is going to produce conflict. So in other words, it's not so much that they're against us living a prosperous life. That's not what the proverbs is teaching. What it's saying is when you choose to have a prosperous life at the expense of relationships and you're creating conflict, that's a very unwise thing to do. How many see that? He's saying better to have less and better relationships than to have more and to have conflict in your relationship. And that's what he says here in verse 1 of chapter 17. Better is a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. How many say that's, that's the truth? You know? You can be, you know, some of the wealthiest people in the world have some of the most miserable relationships, and they're not happy campers. And then you have somebody, you know, you go to other parts of the world, and I've had the privilege of traveling and been some poor countries, and I see these people have nothing, and they're just happy as larks. You know, it's not things that make people happy, and we need to know that. Old Testament scholar Bruce Walke points out that this proverb can be paired up with Proverbs 16.32, which speaks to the issue of having control over one's own soul. It takes peace within ourselves in order to facilitate peace around us. You know why a lot of, there's a lot of conflict? Because we're not happy within ourselves, and we're miserable, and we make everybody else miserable around us. So if you want to get straightened out, you've got to straighten out yourself. Start with you. I always tell that when people come in for marital situations, I go, look, let's just take a look at what you can work on. Because how many have figured it out? You can't change others. And that's not your job. You know, your job isn't to change your spouse. You you know, that's not your job. And even trying to change your kids is a challenge. Anybody figured that out yet? You got to pray, you know. And so here's the proverb. Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. What's he saying? It's harder to actually control yourself than it is you know, to, to be a warrior and take a city. It's actually more challenging to be a patient, self-controlled person. So we see a tension here between a combative person who's able to demonstrate control over others or a person who's learning to take control of themselves. How many, last week we heard Amy preach a great sermon on being full of the Spirit. Do you know, really, I'm going to help you... W- kind of understand something. The wisdom literature, when it's talking about being wise, what it's really telling you is being controlled by God, being controlled by God's Spirit. That's wisdom. This is what it's about. And so here we're being challenged to control ourselves. Self-restraint can foster healthy relationships. Self-restraint in what we say. Self-restraint in going after and acquiring things. Self-restraint with our time. How do we use our time? Well, my time is my own, Pastor. No, it's not. 
See, the moment I gave my life to Christ, I gave up, I gave up the right to be able to do what I want. This is a very shocking statement because I think most of us walk around going, this is my life, I'll do whatever I want with it. And that's why so many people are living a defeated Christian life. First of all, you're not your own. Your body's not your own. Your time is not your own. Your life is not your own. You belong to God now. You need to serve him with all of your heart. And so a lot of times you're going you're gonna to make yourself subservient to the good of other people. You know, somebody in your family wants to do something and you don't want to do it. You need to take a hard look at yourself and say, why don't I want to do this? Maybe I need to do this for the sake of my family. Maybe I need to do this because it's going to enrich my relationship. Maybe I need to do this to spend time with my children. It's meaningful to them. No, I'm too tired. I'm too busy. I don't have time for you to do this. Maybe we have to move past that and say, no, I'm going to make the time. You are important to me. I'm going to invest the time in your life. And how many can appreciate growing up in a home where the father comes home from work and he's tired, and yet he goes out and does something with his child because he believes that his children are more important to him than anything else? And what do you think happens when those children grow up and they remember what their father was like? And when they're, they're at their father's funeral, they think back to all the times their father was tired and he went and did something with them because he was trying to communicate to them how important they were to them, to him. Isn't that powerful? Are we catching on? Is this powerful stuff? Absolutely. You know... Walty goes on to say, an inward control over one's spirit has priority over external military might. So spiritual peace and quiet within a household has priority over its physical feasting or its physical uh, acquiring of many material things. The Proverbs, just another way of expressing Proverbs 15, 17, better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fatted calf with hatred. So what is the application for us today? You know, this is really great. This is, this is the idea. This is the value. But how does that apply to us? And then I like what, I, I, you know, he gave a number of them, but I'm going to quote one from him. Walke says this, to be ready to lower radically our economic expectations and even our rights to enjoy a feeling of well-being. See, I think we've got to change what we expect. One of the reasons why people in, in Canada and United States and Europe and some of these very affluent parts of the world are so discontented is we have a very unrealistic expectation of what we should have from life. That's part of the problem. We just expect way too much. And people who expect a lot are always disappointed. Because usually un, unex, unrealized expectations leads to great disappointment. That's what happens. We set ourselves up. We're unhappy because we expected something and then it doesn't happen. Then we're all upset, you know. As a matter of fact, one of the tendencies of our age is the demand of rights at the expense of relational peace. And I'm hearing that all the time right now. I, that's all I'm hearing. And I'm hearing it even from Christians. We have rights, you know. We can't, on and on we go. Can I just say something to you? You and I don't have rights. I want you to think, I, if, the moment you tell me you want to be like Christ, I say, okay, if you want to really be like Christ, you want to really solve the strife and the conflict in relationships, Paul is now writing to a church in Philippi that's filled with conflict. And he says, be of one mind. You know, be of the same mind. As a matter of fact, in Philippians chapter 2, he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mind as that of Christ Jesus. Do you want to come to a place of agreement? <clears throat> Let's say you're in a conflict with your spouse. You're in a conflict with a friend. And you're saying, how in the world can we come together and be of the same mind? Have the mind of Christ. Well, you say, what's the mind of Christ, Pastor? Who being in very nature God, Jesus is God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He's not using his position and authority for himself. But rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. What's he doing? He's laying aside his rights. He has the rights. We have rights, but we're laying them aside. Why? It says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why is he doing this? Why is Jesus laying down his rights? Why is he dying to himself? Why is he willingly, physically going to die for the advantage of other people. When you and I lay aside our rights for the advantage of other people, we're becoming like Christ. 
we got a long ways to grow. How many say this is really challenging stuff? And you know what? We can talk about this in a very ideological way. I can bring this up. I can quote this stuff. We can talk about it in church. But you know when it really gets important is when I go home and, you know, somebody in the family wants something and I don't really want it to happen. And maybe I'm just being lazy or I don't feel like it or whatever. And I say, okay, I'm going to lay down my rights here. I'm going to lay down my position of authority. I have every right to say no to this. I'm going to lay this stuff down, and I'm going to go do what's needed to be done because that's for their advantage, not mine. And when we start living like that, we're now living like Christians. We're living like Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, to live like Christ. And it says here, you know, and what he does is he allows the Father to be the one that elevates him. You know, so many of us are looking to be elevated. Stop doing that. We're going to get to that in the second point here. Rather, let God be the one that elevates you. Listen, God is the one that highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You want to know the way up? It's the way down. Again, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Let me move on to the second value. Character is more important than status. Character is more important than status. In a culture that is status conscious, don't tell me we're not status conscious. We really are. You know, we worship movie stars and sports figures. That's all status stuff. You know, a lot of people go into political life. It's not because they, you know, there's two reasons. One is to really serve other people. And then there's the other reason, I want to have status. I want people to look up to me. Just take a look at our motivation. Why are we doing what we're doing? You know, is it for status? Look at Proverbs 17 too. It says, a prudent servant will rule over a disgraceful son and will share the inheritance as one of the family. You see, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, to be a son was of high value. But in this text, we discover how prudence and insight is superior in the life of a servant who has no rights. A servant has no rights. And all of a sudden now, he's now going to share the blessing of being treated like a son. And by the way, there's something unique about this proverb. I don't know if you realize that all of us have kind of chimed into this. How do you know that? Because we are now inheriting God's family. We, we who were once outside are now brought in through Christ. You and I are sharing the inheritance as one of the family. How many think that's amazing? Isn't that, isn't that a great thought? Richard Clifford says, virtuous and shrewd behavior opens doors, even providing access to the privileges and wealth customarily reserved for family members. So basically, this proverb is, is, is really instructing a young person to bring honor rather than shame to their family. That's what it's talking about. It's a challenge. Don't do something so stupid that you're shaming your family. You're shaming other people. Do you know our behavior doesn't just affect our lives. I get so tired of people telling me the only person I'm hurting is myself. That's an absolute lie from the pit of hell. Whatever you decide to do is going to impact the lives of other people. And it really affects the people who brought you up into this world. Just think about the sacrifice our parents made to bring us up into this world. You know, a lot of times we are very dismissive. I'll do what I want. I'm going, you're really bringing shame. You're bringing heartache. You're bringing heartbreak to maybe some really good people who really have loved you and poured their life into you. You're just doing your own thing. And that's what it's warning us against not to not to do that. Here throughout Proverbs, certain behaviors are classified as foolish or morally deficient. These behaviors reveal the true condition of our soul. And how do wrong attitudes come to light? You know, what we are on the inside is usually exposed to the tests we experience externally. You know, how I respond in a test is really indicative of the true character of my heart. Listen, Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. Isn't that interesting? God allows things to come into our lives. You go, why did God let this into my life? You know, this may be a test to see what's really going on inside of you. You say, well, doesn't God know what's inside of you? Of course he does, but do you know what's inside of you? And that's the real question, because most of us think sometimes we're either, sometimes we diminish ourselves and think we're worse than we really are, but a lot of people think better of themselves, and when a test comes along, they flunk, and they go, I didn't realize I was so messed up. I didn't realize I didn't handle that very well, and it was kind of shocking how I handled that crisis in my life. That's truly who you are, folks. 
How many say that's embarrassing? You know, I don't want to keep flunking these tests. You know, I want to have God, you know, help me to develop inner character so that I can handle what's happening externally. You know, and I want you to think about it. All of our decisions, you're a product of all the decisions you've made. How about that one? And so a lot of us are walking around blaming people for the way our life is turning out. I want you to go today to the mirror and say, you are the reason where you're at, to much of where I'm at. Not everything. I mean, there's some other things that happen that we have no control over. I get all of that. But what I'm saying is a lot of times our decisions bring us to where we're at. Why don't we take responsibility and say, you know, I made some pretty poor decisions in my life, and I need to ask God to forgive me and help me to make good decisions. I want to walk in wisdom. I want to walk full of the Spirit. I want to make better decisions with my life. And you say, well, it's too late. I've already messed up my life. It's never too late. You can make amazing decisions. If you're 99 years old and listening to me right now and you've made a total mess of your life, man, and you've got two years yet to go in life, I would say right now, decide today, I'm going to make wise decisions from this day forward. I'm going to change the whole destiny of my life. I'm going to surrender absolutely to Christ. I'm going to do his will. I'm going to trust in him. It can totally revolutionize those years of your life. It may not undo all the things you've done, but it's going to make a major redemptive difference in your life and in the lives of others. You know, there's a lot of lonely old people today who made selfish choices when they're younger and are suffering terrible consequences today. And you know what? I'll also say this. You know, a lot of us maybe have made decisions that we're not seeing rewards for in this lifetime. And here's a word of caution that's needed when we're serving others. Move away from the temptation of developing a martyr complex. You say, what's that, Pastor? Well, I'm doing all these wonderful things and no one really appreciates me. Come on now. There are people out there. That's what's going on in your head. You're going, I'm making all these sacrifices and nobody really appreciates what I'm doing. I've heard that comment. It's getting real quiet in here. (laughs) We need to cultivate the right attitude as we're giving in this journey because actually what we should be saying is regardless of how people respond to the good thing I'm doing for them, I should be filled with joy and the opportunity to do it. I should be recognizing God's blessing me to give me this opportunity to serve other people regardless of how they respond. If you're only serving people for their response, you'll quit. But if you're serving God and saying, I'm serving you by serving people regardless of what they say or do, you can have joy in the midst of that service. Let me move on to the third value. We become what we feed our souls. In other words, I can only give you what I am. How many say that's true? Can't give you what I'm not. Can only give you what I have. You know, what we are shapes the kind of relationships we develop. So what's got to happen is we got to work on us rather than, you know, worry about what's going on in their lives. You know, it's very fascinating to me. Patty and I were doing a devotion last night, and it was, we were studying Second Peter, and Second Peter talks about adding to your faith these qualities. And uh, by the grace of God, you know, you and I can't do these things apart from God's grace. Don't, don't misunderstand. I'm not putting us on a trip where we go, I'm trying to do this in my own strength. No, we don't do that. We ask the Spirit of God to help us. But let me just say this. How many of us actually have spiritual goals? How many are actually saying, I'm trying to add to my faith perseverance, or I'm trying to add to my faith self-control, or I'm trying to add to my faith brotherly love? I mean, how many, that's kind of a goal in our life. And the question was raised by the devotional writer, how many Christians do you think have spiritual goals? And I said to Patty, very few. You say, how do I know that? Because you know what, unless you have a plan or a goal and then develop a plan to get there, you're not going to get there. You actually have to concentrate on this stuff. And I think a lot of us are spiritually lazy. I'm being honest. We don't have, you know, we're not sitting down thinking, you know. And I said, you know, so Patty and I were talking about what are we going to work on in the next little while in our lives and really concentrate on saying, God, help me to become, you know, maybe have more self-control or more, you know, I said, I want to be a more loving person. You know, it's great to have knowledge, but knowledge can only lift you up. Love builds others up. And I said, I want to be a more loving person. So now i got to concentrate on how can I be a more loving person. i got to think about that. I got to create a plan to work at trying to be a more loving person. Aren't you a loving person, Pastor? To some degree, but I, could I be better? Absolutely. How many think you probably could be a more loving person? Anybody think you can improve in that area? Oh, well, most of us were saying, yeah. But if we don't 
sit down and create a plan to do that. It's not going to happen, folks. That's what I'm getting at here. Listen to this in verse 4. It says, a wicked person listens to deceitful lips, and a liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. That's a very interesting proverb. Now, you just look at that, and you go, wow. Okay, so listening to deceptive lips. If I pay attention to a destructive tongue... Now, I like what Dr. Longman writes. He said, this proverb provides an observation that allows one to evaluate oneself and others. This may be done through lies, slander, gossip, rumors, false accusations, and the list can go on. Often in Proverbs, this foolish type of talk is condemned. Here we see that listening to such talk is equally condemned. What What is he talking about here? Well, he's just basically saying... When we listen to evil, it's actually an indictment against us. And I, I always say, what are you feeding yourself? You know, sometimes I'll tell people, don't just, don't feed out of the garbage can. In other words, don't listen to all of the innuendos, the gossip, the rumor mills, all the junk that circulates in our society today because in a sense, it's an indictment. Derek Kidner wrote this, evil words die without a welcome and the welcome gives us away. What is he saying? He's saying if, you know, those words can only go on and on and be perpetuated when we help pass it on. But if we stop passing it on, it comes to an end. And if you and I are actually passing it on, it's actually saying you're as as guilty as the person that originated it. You're actually a part of the problem. So, you know, you you say, well, I'm not a gossip. But if you pass on that information, yes, you are a gossip. And if you're listening to lies, then actually, in a sense, and passing that stuff on, you're actually a liar. Now it's really gotten quiet in here. Pastor, don't take any more time off. These sermons are a little bit too sharp, you know. We need to decide they will not entertain verbal and moral garbage that in the end pollutes our soul. That's what I'm talking about. This in turn affects how we see ourselves and others, and then it affects how we treat ourselves and others. I mean, what you believe about yourself in effect helps you either be hindered or move forward in your relationships. If you see yourself as problematic, you're going to be a problem. If you see yourself as being like Christ and meditating on the things of God, you're going to have a totally different outlook, and you're going to treat people differently as a result. No wonder Paul the Apostle, in writing to the Philippians, challenges them in what they were giving their minds to. Remember, this was a church that had strife and conflict. We're living in a world today filled with strife and conflict. And a lot of times as Christians, we're contributing to the strife and conflict. Because we're just listening to all the garbage and we're feeding our minds on it and it creates all kinds of anxiety and frustration and angst in our own soul and then we get upset and we're angry. Oh, now I'm really meddling. But I think this is an important thing to say. I think much of our current anxiety is coming from all the evil that we're feeding our minds upon. There's so much information out there that's designed to stir us up. Isn't that true? Come on, guys. And there are things, yes, we need to be concerned about and address, but today we are constantly worked up about so much injustice in our world. And if we keep focusing on the evil, it breeds continual frustration and anger within our souls until we become an angry person. It's the truth. And then what comes out of our mouth is not grace, but it's judgment and criticism and So you say, Pastor, what should we be doing? Well, let me go back to the Bible. It's a good book. Maybe I should feeding my soul on that. Listen to what it says. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to say it again, rejoice. And I was meditating on this. I was reading some comments on it, and I love what they said. If you have nothing to rejoice on, you'll always have one thing if you're a child of God. You can rejoice on that Jesus is Lord. You can rejoice in the goodness of God. You can be a little joy bulb running around the world. Wouldn't it be great to have some people walking around here full of joy? And they'll be going, yeah, but you don't understand how bad this world is. I know how bad this world is, but I know how great our God is. And I already know because I know the last book of the Bible, and I know that Jesus is going to defeat all the evil in this world. He's going to defeat the greatest enemies of humanity. He's going to defeat the devil. He's going to defeat the beast. He's going to defeat the Antichrist. He's going to defeat all injustice. He's going to defeat death. So we need to get excited about what the good things are in this world. But we're just soaking in all this junk in our system, and then it just pours out of us. But listen to the next verse. 
Not only are we to rejoice in the Lord, he says, let your gentleness, epeki, Greek, let your kindness and tolerance be evident to all. You and I should be the kind of people that kindness flows out of us, that tolerance and acceptance and grace flows out of us. Well, then, pastor, how do you handle the injustices and evil in our world today? Well, Paul's not telling us to bury our head in the sands, but that we should take those things to God in prayer. Do you think you're going to change them? Yeah, there may be avenues where we have a voice or we have a say and all the rest of it, but the ultimate person we need to be talking to with all this stuff is whom? Thank you, God. So then he says this. Do not be anxious about anything. You know, the other night we were doing devotions, and I said, you know, pray for me. Sometimes I get anxious, you know. We're, this is my family, you know, just being honest. Is there an area that you feel God needs to help you with anxiety? But he says, but in everything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and what will happen? And the peace of God. Hey, when you have a peace-filled heart and you're at peace, you bring peace into other people's lives. You know, we had somebody staying at our home the other day and they said to us, you know what the one characteristic of our home is? Peace. I've had people tell me that all the years people have stayed in our home, they go, we feel peace here. Because there is peace. There's not conflict. Peace is such an important ingredient, right? How many here say, I love it when I'm experiencing peace? I love it when my relationships are all well. There's no conflict in my relationships. It's mutual, you know, building each other up and encouraging one another. But, you know, out of us, what were we doing? We're nagging, backbiting, criticizing. I'm just pointing out, and these things are eroding the peace that could be in our hearts. And then it says they're going to, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, a lot of what we're focusing on isn't even the truth. Whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if there's anything excellent or anything praiseworthy, think about such things, right? I, I should give us an assignment, 30 days, no internet, no social media, no newspaper, none of this stuff. Just get in the Word for 30 straight days and just focus on these eight things, and I can guarantee you in one month you'll be a different person gotten really quiet in here. It's the truth. You know what? The world will go on just as it's always been without you being wound up. I guarantee you, it'll go on. Fourth value is what we communicate to others. Our words reflect our attitudes towards those around us. Do we speak uplifting, encouraging, comforting words in our conversation, or are we filled with frustration, criticism, and irritation? pointing this out, because whatever you're saying is coming from your heart. Out of the abundance of the mouth, a heart, the mouth speaks. Listen to yourself. Sometimes I'm tempted to walk around the tape recorder for some people, click it on, not for them to hear it, and then, then just play it back so they can hear themselves. It would, be, it would be shocking. Some of you would be shocked at what you sound like. Could you imagine if somebody pulled that, walked around with you for a day, and you didn't know they were recording you, Kind of like a, you know, a, what do you call it, reality TV program. And then they clicked it on and they played your whole day. And you'd listen to yourself. I think some of us would put our heads in our hands and go, my goodness, do I sound like that? You know, right? Let's change it. Let's change it. I'm not here to make you feel bad. My, my goal is to motivate, inspire, instruct, and say, hey, well, can't we change? How many say, I want to be a happy person? Anybody want to be happy? I got my hand up. I want to be a happy person. I want to be a peaceful person. I want to be a kind person. I want to be filled with joy. I want to have peace in my relationships. I want to have healthier marriage. I want to have healthier family life. Anybody up for any of this stuff? Okay. So what am I saying? Stop coming to me and saying, change my spouse. <laughs> or change my kids. That's not what it's about. I'm saying... Look at yourself and ask yourself, if I have just these four values, how much change will happen in my life? Look at verse 5. He says, he's warning us against criticizing those who are poor. Whoever mocks the poor shall contempt for their maker. 
Whoever gloats over disaster will not go unpunished. Do you know a lot of times people struggle financially? And we know we think, well, they're just lazy. That's not true. You know, many people, you know, some people who have gained a lot financially, they just got it given to them, or they, were, they got what we call the breaks came their way. There's a lot of nice people that work for minimum wage and have struggled all their lives, and uh, they know what it is to struggle through life. You know, I get it. What happens when, you're, when you have a family member that has an addiction? Maybe you're married to an alcoholic and they're spending all the money. And so then you're struggling financially. Just because someone's poor doesn't mean they're a bad person or they're a lazy person. Or maybe sometimes God didn't give them the same giftedness that he gave you, and so they're struggling. Maybe they grew up with, you know, dyslexia. They just never knew how to read. They don't have the ability to have the high-paying job. I could just go on and on and talk about all of the injustice in our economic system. We just, you know, we have a very simplistic view. If people just work harder, they'll do okay. It doesn't always work that way, folks. I hate to tell you, I just want to burst your bubble. It just doesn't always work that way. And to whom God gives much, much is required of them. You and I need to have far more grace, far more mercy, far more consideration of those who have a lot less. And as a matter of fact, those in positions of leadership, which includes parents, employers, and I'm going to add older siblings. If you're the old firstborn in your family, don't use your position to advance your own agenda by using dishonest communication or using your skills to communicate to manipulate other people. In verse 7, it says, eloquent lips are unsuited to a godless fool. How much worse lying lips to a ruler. Now, there's a couple of things here that I noticed. To be an eloquent person means you're persuasive. And isn't it sad when you have godless people who are very persuasive and can actually move people to do what they want, and it's usually an evil thing. And then you have people, how much worse, lying lips to a ruler. A ruler is somebody that is in a position of authority, that's all. And they're using, you know, they're, they're not telling the truth, they're being dishonest. And how many recognize when you're in a position of trust and you lie to someone, you violate trust. And the moment you do that, don't expect people to just buy back in. Because trust is the most important component in a relationship. And when you lie to people, you're destroying that relationship. Do you not realize that? It's very powerful. I mean, these Proverbs are very, very, how many are starting to say, wow, we're just, we just looked at a few verses here. And then having now warned us against using our words to advance sin, we're challenged to show love to those who trespass against us. Now, I was talking to somebody the other day about prayer. I said, you know, isn't that interesting? It says, you know, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. By the way, why does it that Jesus taught us how to pray this prayer? Because you know what? You and I are sinners. And the people we live with are sinners. And I trespass and you trespass. And we trespass against each other. Is that not true in relationships? Yes. You know what's really powerful in a marriage is when a spouse can say to the other spouse, I'm so sorry. Those are the most powerful words in marriage. Forgive me. And the other person doesn't say, I'm going to hold this against you for the rest of your life. Because I think some people try to do that but rather say, yes, I forgive you. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 17, 9 says, whoever would foster love covers over an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. One of the ways to maintain relationship is accept people for who they are. That's not to say we never speak into another person's life or we never correct them, but we need to be forgiving and willing to overlook offenses. As a matter of fact, we have to do that if we're going to have friends. If you're looking for the perfect spouse or the perfect friend, you're going to be a lonely person because we're all imperfect. And there are times when we part company because the offense is of such a nature that it's creating unhealthy dynamics. So I want to just understand that that does happen. I get it. But we also must show greater degrees of forbearance in our days. Dr. Longman says, don't keep bringing up the faults of others if you want to enjoy an intimate relationship with that person. That's a great statement. I love that. In other words, you know, if you just keep picking on someone's fault, you're going to torment that poor person. You're destroying intimacy. They already know they have that problem. Believe me, people know when they're struggling with things. You don't have to keep pointing it out to them. Try praying for them. Amen? And while we are challenged to overlook offenses, we should also be able to be lovingly corrected. This is when you're a wise person. When someone comes to you and says, you know, I've noticed you've been doing this. And, you know, if my wife comes up to me and says, I notice you've been a little irritable lately, that's a good signal to me is, hey, I'm not paying attention to the cues in my life. Thank you. 
Instead of being defensive, you know, I'm not irritable. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? That's kind of the way we want to handle that, right? A rebuke impresses a discerning person more than a hundred lashes a fool. What, what is he saying here? People are, that are discerning value correction and the people who are insecure usually have a hard time receiving correction. But you know what I'm going to say here? You know, you can beat people. That's why a lot of people, you know, feel like no matter how you punish people, they'll never learn the lesson. That's just because they're morally deficient. That's why. They just are stubborn. They don't want to learn the lesson. That's why it says it's, you know, a discerning person is going to pick it up fast. A non-discerning person is just going to keep obliviously doing the wrong thing. And what I'm going to say here is, you know, that we need to learn how to... uh, Experience repentance. In other words, exercise repentance. Change your mind. Learn to continue to grow. Do you know what? Every time I come to church and I hear a sermon and there's an area that I need to improve on, instead of getting defensive, why don't I learn to practice repentance? What's repentance? I'm changing my mind. I'm going, okay, I need to learn how to grow here. This is a growth moment. Instead of seeing it as a negative thing, see it as a positive thing. Is there something that's been said today? Go, yeah, I need to work on that. This is a growth moment for me. And when you take that to heart and you grow in that moment, that's what you're doing is repenting. And it's an amazing thing that God can do when we do that. You know, I'm not saying that the person here that's getting 100 lashes shouldn't be disciplined. It's just that it doesn't have a great impact on their life. They just keep repeating the same things over and over again until they finally destroy themselves. That's the tragedy. And there's so much more I could say in this chapter. I'm going to send you home, read the chapter. But let me just close with reviewing the few things we've touched on today. Number one, people are more important than things. How many say amen? Amen. Number two, who you are is more important than what you do and the status that you have. How many say that? Character is the most important. Number three, we become what we feed our souls. How many think that's important? So you got to ask yourself, what am I feeding my soul, right? Number four, what we say impacts people far more dramatically than what we, we think. There's life and death and the power of the tongue. What we say comes from who we are. So if we want to change our vocabulary, our communication, our talk, we got to change our heart. Oh, do we see that? Okay, let's stand. How many here say, I got some soul work to do? Anybody here willing to say, I've got some soul work to do? Anybody have soul work to do? Anybody have an assignment today? Anybody God speaking in your soul? See, I'm not talking about somebody else. I'm saying you. You know, you have soul work to do. Spirit of God is talking to me right now. I got soul work to do, and I know I'm going to work on this soul work because I know it's going to happen. I'm going to become a better person, and it's going to enrich the people around me. Amen? So let's ask God to search our hearts and to give us grace to address the issues in our lives in order to enrich and enhance our marriages, our families, and our friendships today. Amen. And when you leave, I want you to stay. Let the, let the ushers come forward to dismiss you. Uh, where are the ushers? Ushers. Uh, you guys, are they around? Just go out. Let's, let's go out back row first. Go out through the sides, okay? And then quickly get your kids. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning that you want to search our hearts. You want to bring transformation in our lives. Thank you for these beautiful people. They're your children. You love them with an everlasting love. You have a friendship with us. You're not here to make us feel bad. You're here to improve us. You're here to transform us. You're here to enrich our lives as we enrich the lives of those around us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.